Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. We got engaged. We told all our friends and family that we were getting married. It was a big to-do. And then everything just kind of fell apart. So I live with depression and anxiety, and I call them, pardon my language, my asshole best friends. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. I'm Jessica Hankin. And this week on the podcast, My Mind and Me, two stories about people navigating mental health challenges not without humor. First story is from Allison, who is going to share a story about how she finally overcame a really difficult uh, breakup. So my story is about late-in-life drug use. Um, About six months ago, I started doing ketamine therapy. So uh, here, I'm just going to bring this down a little bit more. Okay, there we go. Ketamine is a legal psychedelic. Um, It was first developed as a painkiller, and it's used medically as an anesthetic. Recently, it's also being used to treat depression, anxiety, and trauma. So how did I get here on my ketamine journey? Um, I was at the end of a very long and messy breakup. Oh, yes, when my girlfriend Lizzie and I first got together, I thought, I'm a thousand percent sure that we are on solid ground. We got engaged. We told all our friends and family that we were getting married. It was a big to-do. And then everything just kind of fell apart. I don't know what happened. That's part of what drives me crazy is the not really knowing what happened. We entered this long cycle of breaking up and getting back together. It's embarrassing to admit how long this went on. There were several years of emotional chaos. Okay, to be clear, this was not the first time in my life when I'd felt unstable. I I had a long history of depression, anxiety, I think in another time or place, I would probably be diagnosed with hysteria, just like too many emotions all over the place. (sighs) And so over the years, I had done the full buffet of therapies in order to stabilize, and I had been doing pretty well. Some highlights of my journey, I have been in therapy. I've taken a variety of antidepressants, and um, I've gone to 12-step groups for codependency. And recently, I even started taking improv comedy classes to meet new friends. Uh, So, but in spite of this, I was getting a lot of support. In spite of this, I just still couldn't seem to stabilize. I wasn't bouncing back. It felt like the decision-making part of my brain had just melted down, and even the tiniest decisions were paralyzing. You know, I'd go down to the kitchen in the morning, and I'd get out a piece of bread and think about putting it in the toaster, 
But then I'd just wander away from the bread and wander over to the oatmeal, and I'd pick up the oatmeal and look at the oatmeal. And I'd be like, huh, should I have toast or oatmeal? I don't know. And it felt like a crisis. And this is how it was just all day long. Anything, anything I had to decide felt like a crisis. And so it was at this point when I was Googling in the middle of the night, like, are there any new antidepressants? Are there any new treatments? And that's when I came across ketamine therapy, signed up for ketamine therapy in the middle of the night. But um, when you actually start the therapy, it's very professional. You go to a medical screening. It's all on Zoom. But you go to a medical screening, and it's just like every medical screening you've ever had. It goes on and on forever. And once they deem that you are a fit candidate, which uh, luckily I was, um, then they send you the drugs in the mail. <laughs> and so you just you get... Just your first dose, um, and for your first, when you take your first dose of ketamine, you've got two people with you. On Zoom, you've got a trained guide from the company who's talking you through things, and in person, you've got a friend who's there with you, who's your peer monitor. And my peer monitor is here tonight. It's Jen. She's amazing. She actually drove me here tonight because I have so much anxiety driving. So she was my peer monitor again tonight, and I really appreciate her. Uh, so here I was um, getting ready to take my first ketamine trip. I didn't know what to expect. I was looking at this bright orange blister tablet, and I was trying to open it. It was all very awkward. And I remember in my head, I was like, Allison, what are you doing? This is crazy. You just need to eat more vegetables and exercise. <laughs> like, like, I was scared. Um, as a child, I'd been afraid of being possessed by demons. Um, so I, I, I had watched The Exorcist, I think, at a slumber party. Anyway, I was, I, my fear was that ketamine would further destabilize me. Um, but I was there, I had the pills in my hand, I was very curious to see what is it going to be like. So, you know, I popped them in my mouth. And uh, so you're like, what is it like being on ketamine? <laughs> um, for the first 10 minutes, I was just waiting, you know, is this going to kick in? What's it going to be like? And then I kind of felt my body, my body just getting heavier and slower and starting to feel kind of different. My guide had prepared me that I needed to lay down. You need to be laying down when the medicine hits you. And, uh, oh, my head felt so good against the pillow and then it just was kind of like a switch went off, and uh, it wasn't scary. I didn't feel possessed. I just felt amazing. I felt like out of that rut of depression. It was like my mind, the inside of my mind, became an interesting, alive place to be. It was like putting on new glasses. Um, have any of you seen those YouTube videos where a little toddler gets their first pair of glasses? Well, this is amazing. Go Google, Google one of these, because the, the little toddler is just sitting there, and the mom puts the glasses on their face, 
And there's an instant transformation just through their whole body and their little hand just shoots up and they're seeing the world for the first time. And that's how it felt to me. Um, You know, the best, those are how the best moments on ketamine feel. It's just this effortless wave of wonder. And it's wonder at, at just being where I am. It's not that I've gone somewhere new or, or I'm hallucinating, you know, a magical forest. I, I'm just, I'm in my room. I've got my same thoughts. I'm the same person. But suddenly, it all feels incredibly fresh and meaningful. Um, and so, that to me, that's the best part of the, the, the gift that this drug has given me, because for, for those of you that have been depressed, you know it's such a drag. Like, everything feels hard. Everything's an effort. Even things that are fun, you know, like taking a hot bath. I just be like, ugh, no, it's too much work turning on the hot water. Can't do it. Um, and so... Okay, so, so you might be wondering, like, kind of an overview of some of the more normal stuff about ketamine. I, I'm taking a low dose. Um, I take it about once a week. And ketamine is not a maintenance drug like Prozac. You're not on it long term. You just take it for a short amount of time, and it's to, it's to get your mind out of that rut of depression. It's just to get your neurons firing in a new way. Um, And as I'm starting to feel better, and I am starting to feel better, I'm finding it very easy to taper off the ketamine. It's not addictive. It doesn't really, for me, it doesn't have um, too many side effects. And I don't feel, like now that I'm feeling better, even though I do, I mean, it's amazing having that sense of wonder, it's not like I feel like, oh, I need to do drugs. Because that was the other thing I was very scared of. You know, like, am I going to become a ketamine addict? Um, so, so far, it's going okay. Uh, so, anyway, to wrap up, um, ketamine did not solve my breakup. Um, I still don't understand what happened. And my girlfriend and I, we have not magically gotten back together. I'm still kind of sad about it. But I'm no longer stuck in that just kind of hellscape, motion blur, crisis. Uh, It feels like my life has forward momentum now. And I'm able to get out of bed in the morning, and I'm able to make breakfast. And so that's my story. Hey, thank you. Her story, I think, does such a good um, service in kind of giving like a very realistic view of what ketamine sort of can and can't do. Yeah. And um, I really appreciate about that because there's a lot of like, you know, hype and buzz and all of that and you don't know. Yeah. And especially with, you know, recent news about Matthew Perry, it's a complicated drug for sure and it needs to be taken responsibly. And um, Allison, you know, does exactly that. To this moment, because I saw her recently, it still seems to be um, have been an effective treatment for them. So that's that's such a blessing. Before we get to our next story, we're going to take a quick break. Support for WYPR's podcasts comes from Catholic Charities. Celebrating its centennial in 2023, 
Catholic Charities is the largest private provider of social services in Maryland. Learn more about this movement to change lives at cc-md.org. This next story is from Heather Moyer, who is a Baltimore-based comedian and um, longtime improviser with Jessica and others around town. Good friend. And um, this is a very candid story about um, dealing with depression and anxiety. And just um, as a content warning, um, she does talk about um, some aspects of suicidal ideation. So please take a listen. So I live with depression and anxiety, and I call them, pardon my language, my asshole best friends. Because they're always around, but it's not fun to hang out with them. And so I live with them, and I used to think of depression and anxiety, I used to picture it as this giant boulder that I had to carry around. Like there would be days when you would be okay, and that means the boulder was like in a wagon, so you could pull it, it was easy to, easy to deal with. But there were also days where you were underneath the boulder and you couldn't do anything. And now, for some reason, I've switched what it feels like uh, to, it feels like I'm carrying a refrigerator. <laughs> and, uh, and it's not one of the new ones either. It's like one of those ones from the 80s. It's like Harvest Gold. <laughs> but, uh, and I don't know what's inside of it. Maybe my therapist should dig into that. But it's very heavy. If you want to know what it's like for me to live with depression and anxiety, go pick up a fridge and carry it around through your day and try to do all of your normal stuff during the day. And I've been carrying it, this for a long time. Uh, it started when I was young. I was uh, closeted. Um, so I shoved, I, it was, I was hidden. I was closeted. I was hidden and shoved all of my feelings inside for fear that I would be outed. I, was, I grew up in a place where it was not safe, and I wasn't ready to be out yet anyways. So I had shoved all my feelings inside. I think that helped me develop my sense of humor because I was always trying to distract from those feelings. Um, and so... Uh, Sorry, I forgot my place. <laughs> and so uh, it, but that, what, what that caused is severe stomach problems for me. It, it, I carry it all right in my stomach. And I was eating Tums like they were candy. I mean, it was just like just terrible stomach pains that I went to doctors to figure out what was going on. Uh, and it, it even culminated <laughs> one night. I was with my parents. We were having this nice anniversary dinner at Red Lobster. And I felt, I felt terrible. I felt so sick. And in the parking lot afterwards, I was like, happy anniversary. And then I threw up. <laughs> I, it made my, I was making myself sick from it. And so my mom wisely was like, maybe it's something psychological. And so I went to go see a therapist, finally, after all those years of dealing with it. And the first thing that she told me that I needed to do was cry, because I had held it in for so long that I just never cried. I didn't cry in front of people. That was, that's weak. For me, it's weak to cry. Um, but then she suggested, when I, when I bristled at her suggestion of crying more, she told me to go see the movie Marley and Me, <laughs> which is a dog movie. And spoiler alert, the, the dog, it's a dog movie. He's going to die. He's going to die. And so I cried a lot. And I, now I cry a lot more. I've gotten through that. I know it's okay to cry now. So I come out of that. So she helped me get onto medications, and it felt so different. I felt like things had really leveled out. I wasn't having these steep drops in my mood and where I felt terrible. Um, But that's not to say that I'm always puppies and rainbows. So when the pandemic hit, um, I started to go downhill a little bit. And I remember the night before my 42nd birthday, I was in the basement about 3 o'clock in the morning, 
uh, sobbing and trying to calm myself down by coloring in one of my daughter's coloring books. But I just felt like I was circling the drain. And um, I lasted about another week, and then I went to the ER. And it's really hard to tell the person at the ER, at the check-in desk, that you want to hurt yourself. That's something that's, that's super hard, and that you don't trust yourself to not hurt yourself. But I did that, and then they, they put me in this room. They took, I had to put on a robe. They took all my stuff away from me and put me in this room, and the, the room had a bunch of medical equipment, and they pulled like this garage door down over all the medical equipment. Everything was bolted down. There was a TV in a box, and all it was playing was like the automotive channel. <laughs> and I was in there for about 12 hours as they tried to find me a placement somewhere to put me and to deal with a social worker. And so they finally found me a spot. I got my first ever ambulance ride, and I got to go to Shepherd Pratt, their residential facility. And I felt relief because I thought, finally, I'm going to figure out like, what's going on, what's, what's happening here. And um, it was quite an experience, for real. Um, they, uh, they check on you every 15 minutes in your room, day and night. There's always someone coming in, like, just checking to see where you are. And I thought, I wonder if I could make it more interesting for that person and make it, and, like, sit in different parts of the room <laughs> each time, like a Where's Waldo type thing. Like, where's Heather to now? And there was, there's a lot of downtime, too, when you're not in group or talking about stuff. And uh, I wanted to play. I was thinking, I was like, oh, I'm going to play solitaire. So I went up and asked the nurses if they had a deck of cards. They're like, yeah, but it's, it's missing some cards. And I go, so you're saying I'm not playing with a full deck. <laughs> and there was no reaction. There was nothing. It was like crickets. And then uh, it's, uh, it's not often quiet in the hospital while I was there. There was a lot going on. And one night, it was about 1130, it was wonderfully quiet. And all of a sudden, I hear it. I hear there's a cricket in my room. And it's so loud, because the rooms are really spartan. There's like a bed, there's a desk, and a chair that are all bolted to the floor. And so it was like echoing around the room. So I got up to try and figure out where this cricket was. And I discovered that it was inside the chairs, this big plastic chair. And I was like, how do I get to this cricket so I'll shut up? And at that point, someone comes in. It's been 15 minutes. Somebody comes into the room and sees me, like, contortioned around the chair, trying to, and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, there's a cricket, and it won't shut up. And so she tries to help me, and she calls in another nurse, and then they call in a security officer. It was like a psychiatric clown car, just, like, <laughs> everybody coming in trying to find how to deal with this cricket. And thankfully, or not thankfully, it was, eventually it was quiet. We never, got to, we never found it. And it was, the rest of the time it was quiet, so I don't know if I, it was allowed to leave the, the hospital. It, it got new medicine, so it was allowed to leave. I don't know. So I came out of, um, oh, there's also goals. Every day you have, to, you have goals there, and they're little goals. that The nurse will ask you in the morning. Now, again, we're confined to this facility. We're not allowed to leave until the doctor says you can leave. And so the goals are simple goals, like today I'm going to take my medicine, or I'm going to, I'm going to meditate, or something like that. And there was this awesome guy, Gary, who's another patient there, who would frequently show up naked in the hallway. Uh, but his goals were always the best. He would make sure he would shout them out so we would all hear them. They'd be like, Gary, what's your goal? And he'd be like, eat a cheeseburger! <laughs> Gary, what's your goal? Fall in love! Gary, what's your goal? I'm going to go fishing. You know, like there were never anything, anything that you could actually do. But it was so entertaining. I love Gary. He was a great guy. 
So I came out of the hospital a week later with some new medications and a psychiatrist, and I actually felt a little bit of optimism, which was nice for once to feel like I had things kind of not figured out, but things were a little more steady. Um, and uh, from there, I've been, do- I've been doing better. I'm actually in the middle of a medication adjustment right now, but that's okay. I'm learning that that's okay. And that uh, what I want to tell folks, the reason I share these stories is because I want to normalize asking for help, that it's okay to ask for help. And if you're feeling like this, that you're not a burden to your loved ones, because that's something that hits me a lot. You're not a burden. You are enough. And you're not alone in what you're feeling. And so I would recommend everybody here to check in on your friends, especially the ones you know who deal with depression and anxiety. Because, you know, there's all, the, like, there's all this language out there about, like, yeah, ask for help, ask for help. But that's so hard. When you're depressed, every little task feels like it's the hardest thing in the world. So check on your friends and your family to see if they're okay. And I, again, I want to share this so people know that it's okay to ask for help. And also because I want people to know it's okay to laugh at it, too. So thank you. story takes me back to the pandemic yeah. and to um, the mental health crises that continue, but the acute crisis of someone like her having to wait in an ER yeah. in the hallway for 12 hours. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to these stories and these storytellers. And, and Jessica and I feel like sharing these stories is, is as Heather says, normalizing um, mental health, which is really just health. And um, anyway... Wishing you all good health this year. And thanks so much for listening uh, to this episode. We'll be back soon with more stories from the studio.